All right, all right. Hey, let me uh, start out by giving a warm welcome to everybody who's with us today on all of our campuses, especially our downtown campus. Hey, let's give a warm welcome to our friends at downtown. They're with us this weekend, man. We're so glad to have you all here. Love you, love you, love you. Man, we love you guys, and we're so excited about the new location that's under renovation for our downtown campus right now. I uh, can't wait for you guys to have a permanent home. You've been packing up and tearing up and in and out for all these years, and we're really excited for the new home for you guys. Anybody notice I'm rocking my new Compassion Christian t-shirt here tonight? Yeah, man, I'm telling you what, I'm praying that before long, you'll be seeing these everywhere you look. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. But friends, this is Vision Week. You know, one weekend out of the year, we set some time aside to just thank the Lord for some of the amazing things that he's doing in our ministry in the last year and some of the stuff that we hope he's going to do in the year to come. And actually, there is a really rich biblical history for services just like this. Now, you know, when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egyptian slavery, uh, they crossed the wilderness to Mount Nebo, uh, where Moses literally saw the promised land, but died just before they crossed over into the promised land. And when Moses died, the leadership baton got passed to his successor, a, a brilliant young man named Joshua, and it was his job to take the people of Israel into the promised land. And to make this happen, Joshua prayed some audacious prayers, and he saw some audacious, miraculous answers and he responded with audacious gratitude. For example, when they approached the Jordan River, you know, that boundary that they had to cross to get into the promised land, the river was at flood stage. And so, man, nobody had a clue how in the world we're going to get, you know, like six million Jewish men, women, and children across that crazy river. And then God miraculously intervened in response to Joshua's audacious prayers. And Joshua was given an audacious plan. He was told by God, assemble the people behind the Ark of the Covenant direct the leaders to march into the river with it and watch what happens next. And Joshua saddled up, man. He led the leaders to the Jordan. They were carrying the Ark of the Covenant on poles. When they got ankle deep in the river, the water stopped. I mean, it started piling up a few miles upstream. Uh, the book of Joshua in chapter three actually names the cities where the water began to pile up. And then Joshua and the leaders stood in the middle of that river while all the Jewish families crossed over into the promised land. Man, it was a crazy unexplainable miracle of God to encourage his people as they started this audacious plan to establish the nation from which Jesus would come to bless the whole world. But before they left that river, God told Joshua to instruct one rep from every one of the 12 tribes to grab a stone out of that riverbed and carry it up on the bank and use it to build a monument right where they crossed over that river. And this monument was to remind God's people of all the help that he had sent them. And all the good he had done for them. In fact, uh, when the leaders of the 12 tribes were sent back into the riverbed, here's what Joshua told them. Each one of you should take a stone up on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. And in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off and you saw it, or your granddaddy saw it, cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And so, friends, there's, a, there's a kind of a deep biblical history of the people of God making an effort to recount the amazing things that God has done among them. And let me tell you, there's a danger when you don't. And this is why Jesus established the Lord's Supper. Now, friends, followers of Jesus have been taking the Lord's Supper to honor and remember what Jesus did for us on the cross every week since the night before he died. And so for, for us to take some time every year to remember and thank God for the amazing things that he has done here at Compassion, 
over the last year, I'm just telling you, it's a very biblical thing to do. And friends, in 2019, God has worked through us to accomplish some audacious initiatives. Now, I'm going to keep using that word audacious. Did y'all mention, did y'all notice that? And I wouldn't be surprised if some of you were just thinking, would you quit with that? <laughs> you know? And I think some of you are probably asking, Cam, uh, is audacity a good thing or a bad thing? Because, you know, some people would define audacity as having the bravery to do something that might offend others. And, you know, according to that definition, well, the word audacious has both a positive and a negative vibe. You know, the positive vibe is, dude, we talk about being bold, bravery. The negative side of that is it can be seen as impudent uh, and sometimes disruptive. But in its best sense, audacious people are bold and daring and often unconventional. And friends, the followers of Jesus in the New Testament are definitely audacious people. And I want to show you a little bit of that. Turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 1. Who's got a Bible with you? Hold it up if you brought one. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Here we go. I want to walk you through some of the audacious initiatives that we see the New Testament church uh, involved in as it got rolling. And then we're going to thank God that 2,000 years later, we're still seeing that same kind of initiative right here at Compassion. Now look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I told him this just a couple weeks ago. Jesus gives his followers his last marching orders. He said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, friends, that's a pretty audacious commission, especially when you think about how many people were actually all in when he gave that commission. I mean, look at verse 12. It says, then the apostles... Dude, that's 11 guys. He gave that commission to 11 guys, and they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, which was a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And then Luke begins to list all the folks who were in that upper room. There were the 11 apostles. And then there were some women who loved and served the Lord Jesus. And there was Jesus' mama. And all of his brothers were there. And a few other folks as well. And then in verse 15, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120 now, talk about audacity. Jesus delivers his instructions for a transcontinental, transracial, translinguistic, global impact to 11 guys who run back and bring 109 others up to speed. And so in verse 24, it says, and then they prayed. And I'll bet they did. Anybody want to say amen? amen. Yeah. You know, what they, you know what we say around here, though, man? When, when you pray, you ought to pay attention to what happens next. Now, look what happens next in Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to read this whole chapter for you, but in verses 1 through 13, the Holy Spirit comes and he empowers the apostles to powerfully preach in languages that they'd never studied before. And suddenly people from 15 different linguistic groups, they're hearing the gospel for the very first time in their heart language. And people are stunned. They can't believe this miracle. They actually said in verse 7, man, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? which is kind of like saying, aren't these 11 jokers all from South Carolina? I mean, how in the world are they speaking so eloquently in my native tongue? What's going on here? Well, you know what was going on. God doing something audacious. And then in verse 14, Peter steps up. And man, he just starts preaching the gospel. And it culminates in verse 36 when he says, look, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, and man, in verse 37, the true identity of Jesus, whom many of those folks had historically seen risen from the dead, man, it hit those folks so hard that they came into the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they began to ask, brothers, what shall we do? 
And in verse 38 and 39 and 40, Peter tells them, here's your next steps. And in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and that about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And man, this is really cool for us because just last month, I spoke on this very same passage and those who accepted the message were baptized and 203 were added to our number that day. Anybody want to say praise the Lord? Come on, man. God is good. God is good. Now let's just hit pause for a second and let's try and focus on what happened in these two chapters. First of all, the church starts with 11 Galilean guys on a hillside with Jesus. That's about the size of a discipleship group. And then it grew to 120 people in the upper room in Jerusalem. That's a nice small church, you know, where Jesus' mama and brothers attended. And then on the day of Pentecost, bam, it explodes into 3,000 brand new multicultural converts from 15 different nationalities who all now need a place to worship and a place to study and a place to pray and serve so they can grow up spiritually. And dude, look what happened. When the apostles saw all these new people who needed to be discipled, they decided to restructure. I mean, 12 guys sitting on a hillside, that don't work anymore. And neither does 120 people in the upper room over somebody's garage. No. We got to do some audacious reorganization if we're going to be good stewards of this huge answer to our audacious prayer. So look at verse 42. It says they got those 3,000 new converts organized. And man, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Man, they focused on the apostles' teaching. We got 3,000 3, baby Christians here. They need to be taught so they start classes so they can ground these new believers in the truth. And they focused on fellowship. They taught those classes in small groups so everybody could get together and be encouraged by other Christian friends while they're learning. And then they focused on the breaking of bread. Man, this is a reference to communion. These guys are worshiping together. They're preaching and singing and taking the Lord's Supper together. But now think about that. How many services would they have to have in an upper room that'll hold 120 people in order to have a worship service for 3,000 new believers? Anybody know what the answer is? Too many. <laughs> Too many services, man. And so you know what they did? They looked, started looking for a bigger place. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> they started looking for a bigger place. And dude, to find that place, they began to pray. They began to pray that God would bless, that God would provide, that God would show up. They started praying for each other. And friends, those four disciplines, apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, that's what made the early church strong. And dude, if you just got baptized, that's what will make you strong. Now let's just hit pause one more time and let's try to parse out what we're seeing here because friends, I'm telling you, compassion is on this same vector. The first thing we see in this passage is the New Testament church embrace an audacious vision. Everybody say vision. vision. Jesus had this lofty vision for his church. He told his guys in Acts 1-8 that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and eventually the farthest parts of the earth. And as crazy as that sounds, if you're a believer today, it's because what Jesus said actually happened. They started preaching the gospel in Jerusalem and eventually it made it all the way to South Georgia. Can I hear an amen? amen? And friends, listen. The reverse of that is happening right now. The gospel is being taught right here in South Georgia, and it's going out from here all over the world as well. And let me tell you, in our Jerusalem this year, we had over 8,500 people gather on all of our campuses every week. Friends, that is one out of every 41 people who live within an hour of this building. 
That's amazing penetration into our culture. And friends, because you have that one person that you've been praying about, that God will use you to bring them to Jesus, we baptized 668 new disciples into Christ this year. Anybody want to say amen? Amen. Man, let's praise the Lord, though. That's awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. You know what we're trying to do? We're trying to make South Georgia the hardest place in America to go to hell from. Amen? amen. That's why, you know, all these new disciples are driving the population of heaven up. And dude, they're slowing the population growth of hell down. Now listen, a disciple is someone who is relationally learning to be, they are learning to become, and they are learning to do. They are learning to be with Jesus, they are learning to become like Jesus, and they are learning to do what Jesus did. Now how does that happen at our church? I mean, he made relationships, he, he made disciples relationally, not, not in big rooms, relationally. You know how we do that? We have 276 discipleship groups that meet all over our community, all over our region, man, uh, part of all of our campuses. And those groups are 2,749 adults who get together every week in relationships where they can learn to be and become and do just like the Lord Jesus. And let me tell you, if you become like Jesus, you're going to start serving somewhere. And this year, we had over 3,000 volunteers using their time, their talent, their love, serving the Lord Jesus every week. And friends, Growth Track has really helped us with this. Uh, your campus pastor has probably already mentioned this to you today. Man, Growth Track is how we help newcomers figure out what our church, how our church works. And then we get them connected in environments where they can grow and they can make a difference. Man, I heard about a brand new Compassion Christian last week who came to our church for the very first time because he was invited by a guy at work. He was somebody's one. They, they worked together, and, and he had a compassionate Christian invite him to come to church here. He came. He loved it. Then his buddy told him, bro, you're a newcomer. Your next stop, growth track. He went to growth track, went through those four weeks, learned what he needed to know, made a commitment to Jesus, and his buddy baptized him into Christ just a couple weeks ago. It's an awesome thing. Awesome thing. Now, the next week he's in growth track, listen, he's team ready. And so they start talking to him about some of these ministries where he can lock in. And he heard that we have a ministry to people that serve with disabilities here. And he said in that class, man, my brother has a disability. That's where I want to serve. And so five weeks after his first visit, he has made a commitment to Jesus, been baptized, joined a team where he can have fellowship and grow and make a difference. Sounds like Acts 2 to me. Anybody agree? Sounds just like Acts 2 to me, man. Now listen, we have another team that we call the Lighthouse. And the Lighthouse provides prayer and food and clothing and household goods to the poor, to people in need right here in our community. One of our Lighthouse volunteers ran Fort Stewart. I mean, a national award-winning leader. And now he's bringing all that horsepower to care for the poor in our community who need the compassion of Jesus through our Lighthouse ministry. So far this year, our Lighthouse Ministries at Henderson and Effingham and Statesboro have helped thousands of people in need just like Jesus. I wish I had time to tell you about all the people who are responding to our Fostering Compassion Initiative. But man, I'm telling you what, it's growing every day. And you're going to hear more about this. But let me tell you, uh, these are my friends. Put the picture of my buddy here. Uh, nope, that, that's, uh, okay, here we go, picture. This is uh, my friend Jeff and Rebecca. Uh, they got one of those $50 envelopes that we hid under the chairs in our services a couple weeks ago. And they've been praying, Lord, what do you want us to do with this? And a couple days ago, God answered their prayer. They heard about a family who just adopted five kids. And if anybody needs prayer, they do. Can I hear amen? All right. You know what they really need, though? Car seats. 
I mean, when you go from zero to five kids, you need car seats. You know what I'm talking about? And so they're like, hey, why don't we buy them some car seats? And so he came to one of the groups that I'm a part of and started recruiting supporters and a couple of guys I know plussed him up a little bit. And you know what? He's taking that money and he's buying car seats for that family who's got a lot to say grace over. Friends, last year, God did a lot of good through our ministry right here in Jerusalem. Amen? Let's thank him for it. Let's thank him for it. Come on. But you've got to know that Jesus called his church to go to the furthest nations of the world, right? And man, we just finished our Faith Promise celebration last week. I know a lot of y'all are wondering, man, how much support came in, you know, for our local and our, our global outreach. And friends, if you missed it, uh, these cards are available this week as well. You can pick these up at Connecting Point on any one of your campuses. We'll have them available in the service as well. But friends, because of your love for Jesus and the people that Jesus loves, you committed over two million dollars last weekend for local and international impact. Friend, that is more than we've ever done before. More than we've ever done before. Now, let me show you how this works. Let me show you two forms that we use to decide how your money gets spent. This, uh, next, this spreadsheet, y'all see this? Y'all got all these numbers down, do you? Yeah. It's intentionally vague, okay? This spreadsheet lists every mission we support with your faith promise giving. And what that mission accomplished last year and the difference they're making because they did. This next spreadsheet represents the evaluation we do on every mission partner every year. And it's based on feedback we got from our partners. It's based on feedback we got from our members who visited those partners on short-term mission trips. This is how we determine whether our investment of your faith promise dollars in these missions is a good investment that we should continue or maybe an awesome commitment that we should increase. Or maybe a, a situation that we need to lean out a little bit so that we can shift some of that support to a more effective ministry. And let me just tell you, this is why we ask you, give your mission dollars to your church instead of going straight to the mission. You can't possibly do this kind of evaluation every year. But let me tell you, we do it every year. You know why? Because your faith promise is a sacred trust. And we treat it with the diligence it deserves. Now let me tell you what that means. Last year, 40 teams of Compassion Christians went around our country and around our world as the hands and feet of Jesus to encourage our mission partners. And those mission partners produced 75,000 baptisms last year. Wow. Last year. That's crazy. Dude, let's just stop. Let's just stop and praise the Lord right now. Okay, Father, thank you. Thank you that you can take something as simple as money and time and energy and turn it into evangelism and discipleship and life change and a kingdom expansion and blessing, Lord, around the world. We are so thankful we get to be a part of what you're doing. And we pray all this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people said, amen. amen, amen, amen. Now, friends, the New Testament church has always shared this audacious kingdom vision because it came from Jesus. Now, here comes the possibly offensive part. When believers really lock onto the vision of Jesus... The New Testament church has to execute audacious changes as well. Everybody say change. change. Everybody's favorite thing, right? That's our favorite thing, man. When, think about how cheap it was in Acts chapter 1 when the New Testament church was meeting under a shade tree on the Mount of Olives. It was awesome. Somebody bring a picnic basket, bring some skin so soft to keep the gnats off, good to go, right? <laughs> think about how cozy it was when the New Testament church was meeting in the upper room. It's in somebody's bonus room. No rent. 
They don't have to pay for parking lot. No expenses. Nice. Of course, not many people getting saved, but it was nice. But the day after Pentecost, <laughs> when about 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus and were baptized into Christ, they had to make some audacious changes or not. Or not. They could have said, hey, y'all go to hell. We feeling good. We like it just like that. Y'all go to hell. This is nice for us. But I'm telling you what, man. Think about how nice it was when Sarah and I first got to Compassion Christian in 1984 at our old worship center on Tibet Avenue. We love this. You know how many people could sit in that worship center? 257. You know how I know? Because I sat down and I did a little butt slide and I sat down again. And I, 257 people my size could sit in that worship center. And that would be, of course, cheek to cheek. And you can take that any way you want to take it, all right? <laughs> but you know, there was a door. There was a door right here on the side of the worship center. And every Sunday at 1145, the sun would reflect off a windshield. It would bounce through that little window, hit me right in the eye. And everybody thought, that's God's telling you the sermon's over, preachers. It's over. Shut it down, man. And you know, it's funny, but this weekend, we're celebrating the birthday of two ladies who were there when our church got started. Doris McKinney and Priscilla Dusham have been here since the first year of our church in 1964. And Doris is turning 97. Yeah. She was 42 when they started the church. And she is still serving here every Wednesday. Every Wednesday. These intrepid little ladies, yeah, and their families, they had to decide, do we want to change our cozy, friendly, homey little worship center and make all the audacious sacrifices that will be required to make room for you, to make room for all of you. You know what they decided? We are going to do exactly what the New Testament church did. You remember what happened here in Acts chapter 2? Dude, they found a place that would seat everybody. They started meeting in the temple courts, and they trained leaders for all those small groups and started meeting from house to house to house, and they trained people how to serve the Lord's Supper, and they taught people worship songs, and they taught people how to pray for each other. Man, read on to Acts chapter 6. They organized a lighthouse ministry to care for widows and orphans, and then racial prejudice popped up in Acts 6, and they confronted it. And dude, when some of their pastors got arrested, they organized prayer meetings to get them out of jail. <laughs> and they did all of this. And I'm telling you, man, the church just continued to grow and grow and grow. And can I just tell you, if you're new to compassion, you need to know that we have completely changed. We have reinvented this ministry four times in the last 30 years so that we would be able to grow and grow and grow just like the New Testament church. So there would be a seat for you. Let me tell you, the first thing we restructured with our, tra our, our staff. When I got to the church, you know how many pastors they had? One. I suggested we might need another one to take care of our students. People laughed. But we went from one to a bunch, and God blessed that. Then we restructured our worship services. We started using the arts, you know, to, to you know, reach people who thought church was too boring and predictable. We started singing songs that were actually written in this century. Can you believe that? <laughs> and God blessed that. It's crazy, man. We restructured how we disciple people. We moved from using Sunday school classrooms that sit empty six stinking days a week and we started holding discipleship groups in homes all over our region. And God bless, bless, bless that too. Dude, we restructured our church so that we could be one church that exists in multiple communities. And today, half of our church is at regional campuses. Let's praise the Lord for that, everybody. Come on. That's good stuff.
Thank God for audacious leaders, you know, who lead all of those campuses for us. But I tell you, that last one, rolling out all these campuses, that, made, that required us to make some audacious changes because complexity was choking us to death. And I'm telling you, the same thing happened in Acts chapter 6, happened to the New Testament church. And they made some audacious changes, and friends, so did we. Earlier this year, we totally restructured our church. It was one of the most audacious initiatives we've ever attempted. We fasted, we prayed, we planned for a year. And by God's grace, last March, dude, we pulled the trigger. I'm telling you, your pastors, elders, and deacons looked at this need to restructure and took a deep breath and led our church into the tunnel of chaos. <laughs> That's the term that Dr. Scott Peck uses to describe the audacious changes that courageous people are willing to make for the sake of their marriage or their family or their business or their church. Dr. Peck says every healthy change comes at the end of the tunnel of chaos. You know how this works, man. When you're at point A, and dude, you absolutely know your marriage, your family, your finances, your church, your whatever needs to go to point B, well, you've got to go through the tunnel of chaos, a, a chaotic time of change, the tunnel of chaos. Now, do you know why your leaders executed these audacious changes? <laughs> Not for me. They didn't do it for me, bro. I don't need this. I mean, I could ride this wave all over the beach. You know what I'm saying? Uh, li listen, I didn't need all the nasty, untrue mail I've gotten since we launched these changes back in March. I don't need this to feel like a man. I got a wife and kids who love me. My ego is satisfied, y'all. You know why we did this? Because half the population of our region is a heart attack away from hell because they don't know Jesus and they don't know they don't know Jesus and we do we did this because lost people matter to Jesus and if they matter to him they ought to matter to us and so to reach that next 9,000 people you know uh, and lead them to a life-changing relationship with Jesus we boldly entered the tunnel of chaos and can I just tell you a secret about me I love it <laughs> I love the tunnel of chaos you know why because it says something about you when you go in there. When you go in there, it says something about you. It says you're willing to do stuff other people will not do in the name of Jesus. It says you are unwilling to go through life drunk on passivity or comfort. That we are not living for ourselves, doing what's easy and comfortable for us. Dude, we live for Jesus. His vision is our vision. He says it, we do it. We will not stand idly by and watch half our population go to hell and then hang our heads in shame when we meet the Lord Jesus because we didn't have the courage or the will or the work ethic to do something about it. But I'll tell you something else I love about the tunnel of chaos. I love what's at the end. It's a sense of awe. They write about it here in Acts chapter 2. Everybody was filled with awe. Listen, man, I've been in church all my life, but only in an audacious ministry like this one, that's, you know, willing to just boldly stride into the tunnel of chaos in the name of Jesus. Have I ever experienced that sense of awe <laughs> that was just normal in the New Testament church? I love that quote from William Shedd. A ship is safe in the harbor. That's just not what ships are for. And so, friends, to reach that next one, that next one, we... We're required to take our church out of the shallows, out of the safe harbor, into the tunnel of chaos. And that's where we are today. 
And we are a third of the way through. Anybody want to say praise the Lord? <laughs> we are a third of the way through. Well, let me tell you something, man. God has blessed us, and we have accomplished a ton. Number one, we have courageously adopted and implemented a new structure. Friends, we made massive changes starting last March that we believe would enable us to double our impact for Christ in the next five years. To accomplish that, we redeployed five out of six of our campus pastors. Friends, I asked five men to leave the campus they love, leave the campus that loves them, sell their house, pull their kids out of school, the schools that they love, move to another city where we thought they could serve the overall ministry better. And every one of them said, yes, yes, noble men, noble men. Let's praise the Lord, y'all. Wow. I'm telling you, I felt like I was in the presence of greatness around these guys. And let me tell you, there was grief over that. There was grief over that because they love their campus and their campus loved them. But I'll tell you, for the sake of the lost and for the good of the kingdom, man, our pastors and for the most part, our people leaned into that challenge and navigated that tunnel of chaos in a God-honoring way. And today, Today, 10 months later, every campus has a seasoned leader with fresh leadership vision, and every one of our campuses is thriving under that new leadership just 10 months later. And friends, let me tell you, with all that change, our attendance, our, 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 we were able to serve 1,000 more people in July than we did the year before. 1,000 more. Yeah, praise the Lord. Hey, we solved our need for a campus pastor at Henderson. Henderson is our biggest campus, didn't have a dedicated pastor, uh, and we have succeeded at organizing this Henderson team uh, in a way that's distinct from the central ministry team, almost. Uh, this is a really sophisticated leadership challenge, but let me tell you, it's underway. We've made needed adjustments for growth. Dude, we've added new parking at most of our campuses. We added a new seating pattern out at our Effingham campus. We put a new four-wheel drive parking lot here at Henderson. <laughs> Not really, we just asked guys to park in the woods, and they did. Praise the Lord, everybody. <laughs> Man, we established a new central leadership structure for worship and discipleship and students and children and new campus development. And listen, they're providing leadership and unified vision across all of our campuses, resulting in better coordination than ever before. Growth track, click it. Our fostering and adoption initiative, gaining traction. Friends, we're almost doubling the number of Christmas Eve services this year to accommodate your one. Your one. You know the easiest invitation you will ever give to the person you're praying to lead to Christ, come to Christmas Eve services with me. That is the easiest invitation you will ever give. There's just something about the Christmas story that's magnetic. I mean, think about the first Christmas story. The angels came, the, the shepherds came, people from other countries came, working people came, wise people came, Jesus came. Jesus coming to our Christmas Eve service as well. He's going to be here. He'll be here. Most of our campuses are having a Christmas Eve service on Sunday night as well as on Christmas Eve. This is a great change. It's a great opportunity for you. Use this. Here's a huge change. Uh, we acquired and are renovating a new downtown campus building. Friends, after years of prayer, we found a home for our downtown campus, and that renovation is underway right now. Now, let me tell you about the favor of God on this project. Last week, the Savannah Chamber of Commerce revealed this amazing plan for the Canal District development, and our downtown campus is at ground zero. They are building all of this right around our downtown campus. It is amazing. And friends, listen, um, did I mention we're having to renovate this building for our downtown campus? 
Have any of y'all ever done that before? <laughs> Renovated a house or a building? Let me tell you something that will shock you. It's costing more than we thought. <laughs> I know that's hard to believe. But here's the good news. Because of your generosity, since last Christmas, we have raised over $3.4 million, most of that in 26 days. Let's praise the Lord, y'all. Praise the Lord, man. Come on. That's the good news. <laughs> Here's the real news. If we can raise another million and a half at our seat at the table offering by the end of this December, we can pay for this entire project with cash and incur no debt at all. Now, that is an audacious goal. So let's pray about this. That's what the New Testament church did. They prayed about it, and then they sacrificed for it. And this seat at the table offering is coming in December. And I hope you'll pray about generously giving so that our downtown campus can continue to reach international students, SCAD students. These are all the countries in the world where we have led a SCAD student to Christ. It's amazing. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu students. We're leading some of those guys to Christ too. It's kind of crazy. Downtown residents. Man, we're leading people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus through that campus. Now, we have embraced lots of audacious changes and we've seen lots of wins. The big question in my mind is, was it worth it? I mean, was, was all the change and adjustment worth the effort this year? You know, we've hit pause on ministries that I love. We didn't do pivot this year, our, our men's conference. I love it. But we hit pause so that we would have space to, to make some of these changes. We didn't do Operation Christmas Child this year. I love it. But we, we, we hit pause just for this year so that we'd have the space to do some of these other changes that we felt like were so important. Was it worth it? One of our Richmond Hill school teachers helped me answer that question last, last Sunday. She told me she was at a football game in Effingham uh, on Friday night, and she started crying. I was like, did your team lose? <laughs> She's like, no, they won. I said, well, what you crying for, girl? She said, you know, I've been praying for Effingham. Now, you know, if you've been around for a little while, that, that Rankin and Effingham High School, about four years ago, that community was just rocked by a series of student deaths. I mean, suicides, car accidents, tragic, horrible things. And she knew that because some of the students that went with her on an Ecuador mission trip, uh, you know, that summer uh, told her all about just the heartbreak and the sorrow and the grief. But during all of that crisis, due to our Effingham campus team was there. They were there. They were at the school. They're praying with those kids, praying with parents, counseling them, just being there. To the point that the last time a crisis struck out at Effingham, the school system asked our church if we would open our building so they could send all the students and the teachers and the parents to our church so that we could minister to them and counsel with them and help them process that pain. And of course, it's our pleasure, our pleasure. But last Friday night, senior night. It's senior night. And all these students, these senior football players, are walking across the field at halftime with their families. And as they would walk across the field, the announcer, you know, would, would read their name and, and tell a little bit about what their plans for the future were. And then just a comment from those senior players. And, and Amy told me, she said, you know, so many of those football players, thank God that it reminded me that they were freshmen when all those deaths took place. And then one of those seniors thanked God for Compassion Christian Church for just being there for him. And that's when Amy started crying, thinking about all the efforts that God made through our church to reach out to those students in a time of crisis.
think it was worth it? You know, to make, make the changes that will position our church to be there for a student when they're being hit by grief and depression. And it's a 50-50 thing. Maybe they'll get bitter. Or maybe they'll get better. Dude, I think any change we need to make to be Jesus to our generation is worth it. Amen? Amen. So let me just wrap this thing up. The New Testament church also employed audacious faith. Everybody say audacious faith. Come on. Audacious, audacious faith. faith. Boom. Don't you just love the way Acts 2, 47, you know, summarizes the favor of God on the New Testament church? It, it says in verse 46, every day, you know, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They got together. They worshiped together. They loved it, man. It says they were breaking bread in their homes and eating together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And that the Lord was adding to their number every day people who were being saved. Do they live in their faith out loud? Man, they're making a buzz in that community about what was happening in that church, which is kind of why I'm wearing this T-shirt. Now, this is a picture of the last T-shirt that we asked everybody to think about just getting one and just wearing it everywhere, okay? Uh, these T-shirts are awesome. I've seen people wearing them everywhere. I've seen people running in my neighborhood with that T-shirt. Uh, I've seen people buying groceries at the grocery store, coffee shops, Little League ball games. I've seen pregnant women, put the picture back up. I've seen pregnant women where the C was the same shape as their stomach, you know, which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> you know? I've seen them at the Rock and Roll Marathon. Dude, I've seen them everywhere. These shirts are conversation starters. They often, they open doors for invitations. You know, basically, that shirt is like 8,000 billboards saying, man, we love Jesus and we love our church. Come join us, man. You'll love it too which is why we're rolling out this version on every campus today. And I'd love to give you this T-shirt, but did I mention we're renovating a building downtown? Yeah. <laughs> did I mention that? So we're going to make these shirts available for a little less than cost, a little bit below cost, five bucks. Uh, and then we're going to cap that for a family. You know, if you've got 50 people in your family, you know, 20 bucks, that does it right there. And if you have 50 people, then sermon next week's on Lion. We'll be talking about you. But here's what I hope. You know, I hope, if you can, and, and you know, if you just can't afford a shirt, just tell them to give you one and put it on my tab, and I'll get Dale Bushlon to pay for it. It'll be awesome, right? All right, so <laughs> you, we'll, we'll hook you up. But, but here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that again this year, we'll see these T-shirts everywhere. Every ball game, every park, every beach, the school, gym, neighborhood, everywhere. And when somebody asks you about it, unleash that audacious faith. Be bold and daring. Love them. Be kind to them. Be that person that reverses any prejudice they might have against God or the church. And then offer them that audacious invitation to come here with you where they can find Jesus. Because Jesus changes everything. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time you've given us to be together. I thank you, Lord, for all that you have done through our church this year. We would not even pretend that these good things that you have done would be possible in our strength or because of our talent or our intelligence or our effort or anything else. We know, Lord, there's just this God factor to what's happening here at our church, and we love it. We have a sense of awe about it. We're grateful for it. And I pray, God, that everybody here would begin to feel that way about their life because they open their hearts to you they make an audacious commitment to you. And then you start doing what only you can do in them. 
And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen.